So good morning. Again, my name is Bob Hudson. I'm a member here at New Life, and I'm thankful to uh, be with you this morning. Uh, I hope you all had a wonderful uh, Christmas season and Christmas Day yesterday, celebrating the birth of our Savior. And uh, I'm encouraged to see so many of you here this morning. I know it can be exhausting, the Christmas season, uh, but uh, so glad that uh, you made it out this morning and so thankful that we can uh, worship together. Uh, So here we are, the day after Christmas, and some of you are probably sad that it's over, and some of you are likely relieved that it's over. Uh, The question is, where do we go from here? For over a month, many of us have had our lives revolving around uh, Christmas parties, Christmas planning, Christmas shopping, wrapping presents, hanging lights, special church services, Christmas carols, and now suddenly it seems to be over. You know, to many of us, these things have been a source of joy over the past month. So it's, it's no wonder why there's a common sentiment out there that we should live like it's Christmas all year round, or we should live in the Christmas spirit all year long. Uh, when I think about that sentiment, I actually think back to my childhood, uh, to a Sesame Street Christmas special. It was called Elmo Saves Christmas. It came out when I was probably about seven years old. Um, and basically the gist of this, this uh, Christmas special was that Elmo gets a magic snow globe from Santa Claus. And this snow globe grants wishes. And so uh, Elmo, wishing to live in the spirit of Christmas all year long, uh, wishes that every day was Christmas. Uh, the, next way, the next day went to everyone's surprise, it's Christmas again. Santa tells him, you've made a mistake, Elmo. He gives him uh, a magic reindeer that can fly through time to show what Christmas will be like in the future now that it's every day. Elmo flies one year into the future and finds a very different scenario than what he expected. Right? There's trash bags all over because garbage men don't work on Christmas. Uh, carolers have lost their voices from singing every day and now they're hoarse. The count is worn out and tired of counting Christmases. 365 Christmases is too much. Grover has no Christmas trees left to sell because he's all sold out uh, and they're actually now an endangered species. Uh, Big Bird hasn't seen his best friend, the Snuffleupagus, in a year because Snuffy is spending Christmas with his granny and now that Christmas is every day, Snuffy is never coming home. Uh, And Santa is tired and decides to retire to Florida. So it's a disaster, right? This is not what Elmo expected when he, you know, when he wanted Christmas every day. And, you know, I doubt this is the kind of thing that we're thinking about when we, uh, when we encourage others to live in the spirit of Christmas all year long. I doubt most of us are thinking about exchanging gifts every day and keeping our Christmas tree and our lights lit all year on the house. So what do we mean when we say it? What do we mean? I think a good guess is that we're trying to live in the same spirit of joy, peace, generosity, love, and kindness that can often be seen more clearly during the Christmas season. You know, these things are all good and worth pursuing. In fact, many of those things match up quite well with the fruit of the Spirit. But I would like to talk about another aspect of the Christmas spirit this morning that we don't talk about as often in church. And we rarely, if ever, talk about them outside the church. And that is weakness. 
Right? Weakness is a key aspect to the Christmas story. After all, Jesus Christ, the Son of God with all power and all authority, became weak, being born as a helpless infant for our sake. He made himself weak so that we might know him. Our passage this morning is not necessarily a Christmas passage, uh, yet it teaches us to walk in the footsteps of our Savior, who embraced weakness so that the power of God might be made known to the world. So if you have your Bibles, um, please open up to uh, 2 Corinthians 12. We'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 10 this morning. And uh, right now we're going to focus on uh, verses 1 through 6. Before I dive right into the reading of this passage, I just want to give kind of a kind of a nutshell synopsis of chapter 11, the preceding paragraphs into this chapter. Uh, this is written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And in these preceding paragraphs, he tells the church, hey, there's a lot of things that I could boast about. I could be a pretty big deal if I wanted to. There's, I have a lot of qualifications. I'm, I'm, I'm the man that, you know, if, if you knew all about me, you'd be saying, whoa, Paul, that's amazing. That's really cool. But Paul says, but even though I have all that, I'm not going to boast in that. Instead, I'm going to boast in the ways that I've suffered. Instead, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. And he comes into this, uh, this passage that we're going to read in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, and he uh, expounds on that. He, he, he talks a little bit more about that. So let's, uh, let's read together. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on behalf of my own self, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain for it, so that, from it, so that no one may think more of me than he, chooses, than he sees in me or hears from me. So I want to just explain a little bit about what's going on in that passage. You might be, you know, listening to that passage and think, what is going on here? What is Paul talking about? So Paul is, is talking about, you know, do you want to hear what I have to boast about? Do you want to hear what I could be boasting about? Listen to this. Fourteen years ago, I saw a revelation of the Lord. I was taken up into the third heaven. You might say, what is the third heaven? I thought there was only one. What is going on? So just, just to give you a, a, a little summary, in, in ancient Hebrew cosmetology, basically everything above the head was the heavens. Where the, where the birds flew, that was the heavens. Where the stars were, that was the heavens. But this third heaven is this idea of completeness, wholeness, heaven of heavens. Uh, almost in, in uh, theologian Tim Mackey's words, it's, that's God's space. That's where God dwells in the third heaven. So Paul is saying, I was taken up into the presence of God. 
And I saw things that were amazing. I heard things that no man may utter. What I experienced, I could never even explain to you. It was that amazing. But Paul says, I'm not going to boast in that. Instead, I choose to boast in my weaknesses. So right off the bat, we find out the answer to our first question. What's worth boasting in? Weakness. And that's, the, uh, that's, that's, that's our first major point of this, this sermon. Weakness is worth boasting in. Weakness is worth boasting in. Uh, that may seem like a foreign concept to some. So let's dig a little deeper and find out why. Paul recognizes that his experience and his vision are nothing to boast about. He did nothing to bring them about, and he is not able to make it happen again. Paul recognizes that all he is as a Christian is a gift. Not given to him because of some intrinsic righteousness, but because simply God chose him. In fact, in Paul's case, we can make the strong case that God chose him to be in Christ, not because, his, not because of his godliness, but because of his ungodliness. Paul's transformation from persecutor to apostle stunned all that knew him and all that knew about him. It was a testament to the power of Christ. And Paul was keenly aware of this. I think, however, the sad reality is that Many Christians are not as self-aware as Paul, which in turn leads them to be less aware of the grace of God. Let's imagine a single mother and her teenage child. The mother works two jobs just to get by financially, but she adores her son and wants him to know he's loved. So she saves And she scrapes together enough money to buy the newest set of Air Jordans that her son has been begging her for for Christmas. The son, unaware of how much his mother has sacrificed to buy him those sneakers, opens the package and immediately runs upstairs and calls and texts his friends and tells them what he's got. Yo, I just got the new Jordans. This is amazing. I'm going to be such a baller at school. Right? He goes to school the next week and boasts to his friends about what he's got. He may even downplay what a big deal it is that he's got these shoes. He wants people to know that he belongs in shoes like these. He's as big a deal as he looks. He's the big man on campus. What has he done? He's taken a good gift from his mother, a costly gift at that, and used it to make himself look great rather than giving his mother the honor due to her. Now, this is a trivial example, but it's, it's an example of what we do with God's good gift, namely the gift of faith. We must keep in mind in this season of gift giving that every good thing that we have is a gift from God. That, that not only includes things like your clothes, your car, and your house, but it more importantly includes your values, your skills, and most importantly, Your faith in God. This has all been given to you. You have earned none of it. And Paul recognized that. He recognized that without the grace of God and the overflowing generosity and love of God, he would still be a persecutor of God's people, living for his own glory as he made himself great in the eyes of the other Pharisees. Can you relate? 
Maybe without the grace of God, you'd still be out living for your own glory, seeking temporary and worldly pleasures through things like money, notoriety, sex, and worldly comfort. If you've been there, you know those pleasures are fleeting and don't satisfy. Maybe maybe you're still in that place. If so, I encourage you to keep listening and hear about the grace of God to people just like you and me. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote these words. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Because Paul realized that his faith, his leadership in the church, and this beautiful vision that he had seen was all a gift, he saw them as not worth boasting in. He recognized, as he wrote in Ephesians, that he was completely dead in his sins. There was nothing that he himself could do to make himself alive. Yet Christ, in his mercy, gave him the gift of life in Christ through the gift of faith. He had no more responsibility in being made alive in Christ than we have in physically being made alive as infants when we're born. Right? Paul recognized that all this has happened to him, but refrains from boasting so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me, as Paul writes. Paul does not want people to think he is any better than they are, so he refrains from boasting about his great experience. Yet he does boast in something. His weakness. He boasts in his weakness. Uh, Pastor Dane Ortland writes this. Paul's instincts have been turned inside out by the gospel. While those outside of Christ long to boast in their strengths and hold their weaknesses at arm's length, Paul longs to boast in his weaknesses and hold his strengths at arm's length. His instincts have been turned inside out by the gospel. And so it should be with us. But what's so great about weakness and why is it worth boasting in? Right? When you think about boasting in weakness, you might think about that real tiny spunky kid in your pickup sports games uh, who, you know, talked a real big game and then went out on the court or the field and just got pushed around, just got wrecked. You know, he he was just a, a picture of weakness. You know, when I'm, when I think about boasting and weakness, I'm reminded of this, uh, classic scene from my childhood here. Uh, look, he did it! Uh, I think that's from the first ever episode of SpongeBob. But, um, you know, these things are not really what Paul is talking about here. Those people who are sponges are boasting in their perceived strength without realizing their own weakness. What Paul is saying that even in the midst of success or something glorious, he is acknowledging that he is just a weak recipient of good gifts from God. What this does is redirect the honor 
and praise to the one who truly deserves it. When we boast in our own weaknesses, we celebrate the strength of God. Paul is telling us that this is far greater than boasting in your own success. But life is difficult, right? It's not easy. We need strength to get through it. You might be, you might be wondering, why would Paul call us to be weak? Why would Paul call us to be weak in the midst of a, different, a difficult world? One racked with hardships. Well, that takes us to our, our second point, and that is this. It takes strength to be weak. It takes strength to be weak. And we're going to read uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, the rest of our passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Each one of us is presented with our own set of challenges in life. Many of them are unique. They're shaped by our own personal circumstances and relationships. Many of them are similar to what everyone else goes through, right? Health issues, financial trouble, heartbreak. What these have in common is that they require strength and perseverance to face. And believe me, Paul knew this all too well. This is what he says just a chapter earlier. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Do you think Paul didn't know hardship? Do you think Paul didn't need strength? Paul's life and his ministry after his conversion could be characterized in many different ways. But I think it's fair to say that one of the primary characteristics of his life was hardship. Paul was a man who was well acquainted with suffering. And even in the midst of this, he has something that he calls the thorn in his flesh. Some sort of hardship given to him by God to keep him from becoming conceited about that amazing revelation that he received in uh, the previous paragraph. We might picture, uh, when we hear this word thorn, a thorn from a, a rose bush or a briar. 
um, that causes some irritation and pain. However, this word uh, translated as thorn, the Greek word is, is scallops, could just as easily be translated as steak, like a steak you used to kill a vampire with. You know, this was something that was immensely painful and troubling to Paul. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was bad enough for Paul to plead three times that uh, he would take it away. And that that uh, number three times, again, we see just as, as the third heaven den- denoted wholeness, you know, completeness of heaven, this, this three times kind of com- uh, denotes that he prayed with his, his whole self. He prayed to completion. Uh, I'm sure he prayed many more than exactly three times, but this number three denotes... I complete, I prayed completely, wholly, sufficiently. And we don't know exactly what this thorn was, but whatever it was, he described it as a messenger of Satan to harass him. Now, maybe it was some sort of physical ailment, uh, some sort of thorn in his actual physical flesh that caused him immense pain. We don't know. Maybe it was uh, some sort of mental health issue, depression, anxiety. I myself have walked through seasons of depression and anxiety, and I know from, you know from firsthand experience that it certainly does feel like a messenger of Satan sent to harass. You know, in those seasons I've gone through, you know, I'm thinking thoughts I don't want to think. I'm feeling emotions I don't want to feel. And it just feels like the, the, the enemy is attacking me. Maybe it was some sort of relational issue. We don't know. It's, it's hard to speculate. And I think Paul left it open um, for the sake of his readers um, to let us know that what the wisdom that he's sharing applies to not only just his situation, but many situations of hardship, of difficulty. But now some of you might read this section about this thorn and say, wait, hold up. How could a God, how could God make his own disciple suffer? How could he give him this thorn? How could he give him suffering? Why would a good God do that? You might even be asking, is the suffering that I am going through right now given to me by God? Well, I can tell you as it pertains to your own suffering right now, I don't know the reason. I know that we live in a world where suffering has become normal and common as a result of the stain of sin. And yes, even in the midst of this sin and this sorrow and this pain, our God is sovereign. So you ask, has God given me this suffering? If we are serious about the sovereignty of God, then we have to be willing to say yes. But I think if we look at the whole of Scripture and look at how, how God consistently used for good what the enemy had meant for evil, I think the better question to be asking is, how is God using this suffering that I'm going through right now 
to refine me? How is God using this momentary suffering for everlasting good? Just look at how God has used the suffering uh, of his people to, to refine and strengthen them and raise them up. Look at the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery and imprisoned only to be raised up and save his family, God's people. Look at the story of Job, who lost everything he had and endured tremendous suffering only to remain faithful and be raised up higher than he was before. Look at David, who spent years of his life running from King Saul, only to be lifted up and be made king. And look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was beaten and murdered on a cross for the salvation of his people, only to be raised to life again and seated at the right hand of God. God is in the business of using what the enemy meant for evil for his own good purposes. And he is sovereign over it from beginning to end. So let's go back to the second main point. It takes strength to be weak. It takes strength to be weak. What does that mean? Well, let's look at God's response to Paul when he asked God to remove his thorn. God says this, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Do you hear what God is telling Paul? He's saying, Paul, I know this moment is difficult. I know you're suffering, but I've sustained you this far and I'm going to continue to sustain you through the power of my grace. I have never let you go and I have no plans to let you go. In fact, Paul, my power is made more effectual than when you embrace your own weakness, relying on, rely, not relying on your own strength, but mine. Do you hear that in this text? You could write a book on all that is embedded in this one statement. So Paul took this and ran saying, yes, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood that it's through embracing our own weakness that we are finally able to access the strength of God. That's what I mean when I say it takes strength to be weak. It takes God's strength, not our own, so that we can truly embrace our own weaknesses. We absolutely need strength strength to face this life. But if we are relying on our own strength, those challenges will be multiplied. If we are relying on the strength that comes from God, We can rest in knowing that there is no situation that we can face that is out of his control. Again, Pastor Dane Ortland writes this. The presence of God will sustain Paul and you and I. The power of God will strengthen him. What we must not miss is is that it is not Paul's strength, but God's. Paul's contribution is weakness. But this is not a concession. 
It is precisely what God needs. This is the mystery, the wonder, the glory of apostolic Christianity. Our weakness attracts, not repels, God's own power. Our lowness and incapacities, which we naturally fear and flee, are precisely where God loves to dwell. It's when we embrace weakness that we identify with our Savior. The Son of God, in all his infinite wisdom, chose not to save the world through a display of his power, but by making himself weak. Paul writes this in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's break that down in layman's terms. This passage is saying, be like Jesus, who though he himself had all the power and all the glory of God, made himself nothing, coming into the world as a man, not just a man, but a disgraced man who would die a murderer's death on a cross, all for the sake of the salvation of a people who don't deserve it. And because he has done all this, God has raised him up to an even higher place of honor and glory than he had before. Jesus Christ is the one we ought to be looking to when we ask the question, what does it mean to embrace weakness for the sake of living in God's strength? When we stop searching for that inner strength, and instead admit our own weakness, even leaning into that weakness, and search for the strength that comes from God, we not only live out the wisdom that Paul is relaying to us in this passage, but we, in a small way, follow in the footsteps of our Savior. So as we go out from here today, seeking to live in the spirit of Christmas all year long. Yes, I want you to live with joy. Yes, I want you to love, live in peace with one another. Yes, I want you to live in love, showing Christ's love and kindness to, to all that you meet. But I don't want you to forget, we've also been called to live in weakness so that we can embrace the strength that comes from God. We can follow in the footsteps of our Savior who was born as an infant to a couple of nobodies in ancient Israel. Born in a stable. Born to suffer. Our Savior made himself weak for our sake. And we too are called to make ourselves weak so that we might embrace the strength of God. Let's close with a word of prayer.
Father, thank you for this time we've had together this morning. Thank you for this uh, time of meditation we've had on what it means to live in weakness so that we might embrace your strength. Help us to boast all the more gladly in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us, so that others may see the strength of God and his glory and his might and his power working in us. I pray that our lives would be a testament to your power and not our own. Thank you for a wonderful Christmas season. Thank you for reminding us about how your, your son uh, came as a baby in weakness. Help us to live in that same weakness and help us to go from here and honor you and glorify your name in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.